On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Today, we are thrilled to be chatting with Sally Hepworth. Sally is a New York Times bestselling author. Her last novel, The Good Sister, was an instant bestseller. Her fifth novel, The Mother-in-Law, has been optioned for a TV series by Amy Poehler. Sally's novels are available worldwide and have been translated into 20 languages. Her seventh novel, The Younger Wife, is out now. Sally lives in Melbourne, Australia, with her husband, three children, and one adorable snoring dog. Indeed. (laughs) Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Sally. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about The Younger Wife. So The Younger Wife, as it may not surprise you to hear, is about a younger wife. But it's actually about a lot more than that. And for readers of my previous books, you will not be surprised to find that it is about really dysfunctional families, which is where most of my books end up. This particular book is based around the Aston family, who is comprised of the patriarch, who is Stephen Aston, who is a heart surgeon in his 60s, his wife Pam, who is the mother of their two adult daughters, Rachel, who is a baker of wedding cakes, amongst other things, and Tully, who is the mother of two adorable little rascals. So, The book kicks off when Stephen, the father, announces to his daughters that he is going to marry a woman who is younger than both of them, which is controversial enough before we take into account that he is still married to their mother, who is currently in a nursing home with dementia. So in the very first scene of the book, so it's not really a spoiler to tell you this, we're at the wedding and the wedding is being narrated by a mystery guest And we watch Stephen marry his new, much younger wife because she is 25 years younger. And we then watch them go into the sacristy to sign the wedding papers. And then a few minutes later, the celebrant runs out and her white pantsuit is covered in blood. And we know someone has been seriously injured. So the book then goes backwards. It's what I call an upside down book where we start with that, the big scene, and then we go back a year in time and we get to find out how Stephen met this woman, what his daughters thought about it, and all of the events that led up to this wedding. And also try to figure out who did it, who was hurt, and why. And it's told through the perspective of three women, the two daughters, Tully and Rachel, and Heather, who is the younger wife. I already read it and I'm excited to read it again. <laughs> I know. Like, such a good it's setup. so good. And you mentioned the three women. So you're leading right into my first question. So on this podcast, we focus on complicated three-dimensional women. And you've given us three, as you said. First, we have the sisters, Tully, a wife and mother who seemingly has the perfect life, but compulsively steals as a way to deal with her anxiety. 
Then there's beautiful Rachel, who refuses to date and uses baking as therapy. They're competitive and different, but also there for each other in the way that only family can be. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about your development of Rachel and Tully, who came first, who was easier to write, if one of them was more challenging to write, anything. I think with most of my books, the most wild character comes first. And and in this case, that is Tully, who is in the most affectionate way, a lunatic and gloriously neurotic as well as, as you mentioned, being a kleptomaniac. But I, I found her very endearing too. Yeah. And so I find having a really mad character in all of my novels helps me to kind of anchor it. And then I surround them with people who are different, who challenge them and also compliment them. So I started with Tully and she came to me just like a flash. I mean, she's such a larger than life character. I knew she was going to be a challenge because she erred on the side of being maybe a little unlikable. And that is a challenge, but I also really like flawed characters who can redeem themselves. So you've got to have somewhere to go. You know, you don't want to have a blah character that is perfectly nice, but who cares? So there was her. Rachel then really appeared as a kind of adjunct to Tully in a way. And the kind of person, I suppose, and I haven't said this before or even thought it, but I have brothers who are twins. So they're twins with each other, not with me. And one of them, they're actually, it's a similar kind of symbiosis in the sense that one of my brothers is quite mad in the best way, you know, not a kleptomaniac, (laughs) but really funny and sharp and a little bit, you know, the brain works really fast and perennially late and difficult, but glorious. And then my other brother, Chris, is this really calm, easygoing. He's had to put up with this lunatic his whole life and, you know, wait for him (laughs) when he's late and counter him in a sense. So I, I sort of feel like that was Tully and Rachel to an extent. It's that Tully needed that kind of person and whether or not Rachel was born that kind of person or if that's what she was forced to become, I don't know. But that was how she sort of came together for me without all this thought process. Like the characters right. come to me, I don't go, oh, this is what I need. It's not this plus this equals this. It's just that that was how those two came together. I love that the wild character anchors you in the story. <laughs> you're like, this is it. I know. In all your stories, you're telling me that's pretty, that's interesting. That's the, the starting point. Yeah. That makes sense. Most people have to start with the calm thing and then amp it up. And you're like, no, no, I got my anchor with the crazy one. <laughs> well, I'm a bit mad as well. So yeah. I think that's my comfort spot. You get your mad character and then just set them in this world and... Yeah, that's how it works for me. But everyone does it differently. Yes. Then there's also Heather, the younger wife that we've already discussed in the title. Heather has had a challenging home life as a child that she thinks she's really outrunning, outpacing, and kind of ready to leave behind. And I think when she meets Stephen, she feels convinced that maybe she is leaving it behind. But then as things escalate in their relationship, she gets worried that it's catching up to her. And there's there's just a quick line that I 
really spoke to me. It's actually in italics, so I no wonder it spoke to me. But he's, she says, he's starting to see me, she realized. He's starting to see me. And for someone who has secrets in their past, being seen, even by the person that you love and want to be with, is a terrifying prospect. So I thought you really nailed it there. So tell me about Heather and how, where she came. Did she come after the sisters? And how did she mess things up in this dynamic for you while you were writing it? Well, I knew that Heather was not going to be exactly what you expected because with all of my books, I said I love dysfunctional families, which I do, and the product of one in the best way. And I really didn't want to bring out your standard younger wife because it's nothing new, is it? The younger wife. In fact, in the title, in a sense, is a cliche. We all know or have read books about younger wives or seen movies about them. And the trope is that they are gold diggers, that they have daddy issues, that they are kind of the manipulator in the situation. And then the older husband, as it were, is fairly passive in it, which is, I think, quite interesting. Interesting. So I wanted to do something different and I thought about it. And, and this book's difficult to talk about without kind of going into yes, spoiling zones, but I really wanted a character who would be, again, all of them are flawed. All of them have backstories. And Heather was going to be a character who to an extent, you know, was looking for a certain something in a husband and Stephen filled that for her, that looking for that security and safety that she didn't have in her childhood. But it was so much deeper than that. And why does the older husband have to be passive? So I was really interested to give him more of a role and to look at, is it always the younger wife who has malintentions and what that could look like and what kind of person could end up in that kind of relationship? And and that was what brought me to Heather. And, and so many things that we learn about her came to me as I wrote them as well. But well, yeah, for me it went, I think it went Tully, Rachel, and then Heather and, and Heather, I kept peeling back the layers of her as I wrote the book. Yeah, you can tell. So I want to talk about the inspiration for this book, which you recount in the acknowledgments. I could read it aloud, but I just think we'd much prefer to hear you tell the story because it's just so great. So tell us the inspiration. <laughs> there, there were two little things. I'll tie them together. So the two things are younger wives and a hot water bottle. Yeah. <laughs> now, I just want to say because I've had a obviously lot. <laughs> and I do find that as authors we trot out this one story over and over again which is what inspired the book but what I find for me but also for a lot of authors that I know it's not one particular thing it's a combination of things that come together and so the younger wives was as you might realize it was about younger wives cropping up in my circles fun fact i'm a younger wife i'm six sometimes seven years younger than christian depending on the time of year he hates me calling him my much older husband but um <laughs> we'll leave that aside but in these cases it was women 25 years younger or more and it was two of my very close girlfriends one was her father married a woman who was younger than her and her sister and another friend, it was her father-in-law that married a woman younger than her husband. In both cases, they went on to have children, these two unions. And in one case, things kind of worked out and they, as a family, they were able to kind of navigate that big upheaval and continue to be a family. And in another case, they're still struggling with it. But what I saw in both stories were families who were desperately trying to make it work. It wasn't what they chose or would have chosen for their family, but 
rather than it being this Hollywood style, she's dead to me, let's cut her out of the will, she's evil, it was more, okay, well, this is our reality and how do we salvage some sort of family? And that really spoke to me in terms of being able to flip this younger wife story on its head and look at what if the reaction was what I was seeing, which is, you know, okay, this is the situation, but how do we make it work? That was one piece. (laughs) The other piece was the hot water bottle. Now, do you guys, I'm assuming, but for listeners, know what a hot water bottle is? Because I've had a lot of American people saying, what's a hot water bottle? You know, I haven't seen that. And and so <laughs> was that was a great accent. accent. Oh, was it? <laughs> yes. I need to work on my southern accent because that's um, oh, that's my favourite yes. one. It's kind of a rubber bottle that you fill with boiling hot water and little old ladies use it to warm up your feet in bed, you know. Okay, yes. that's what I yes. thought. But okay. We use them a bit in Australia, but it seems like it does seem kind of Victorian or something, yeah. doesn't it? To... Yes. <laughs> yes. In any case, we use them, particularly little old ladies use them, which brings them to the origin of this story. It was a couple of years ago and I got a call from my great auntie Gwen, who it was like my grandmother. She passed away in January at the age of 93 and she just had a glorious long, wonderful life. But we were very, very close. And she called me a couple of years ago to say that she'd been taken to hospital. And so I was getting ready to go to the hospital because I was the one that would would go and, and be with her. And she said, I need you to go to my house and get my hot water bottle and bring it to the hospital. And I thought, has she hit her head? Like, why on earth does she need her hot water bottle in the hospital? Like, have they got no heating? What's going on? And I said, well, but she was a difficult old broad. (laughs) When she wanted something, she wanted something. And I said, I have one. I'll bring it. And she said, no, I need my hot water bottle. I thought, this is interesting. What is going on here? And I said, all right, I'll go get it. And she said, well, it's in my house, in the spare room, behind the chest of drawers, under a pile of newspapers. And at this point, I was like, oh, what, about a, yeah. what, what is, is happening in there? Yes. So I the raider in, the, in you was oh, like, my God. And I, I was driving there and I called my brothers on the way and I'm saying something's in this hot water bottle and we're all hypothesizing about what could be in it. One of my brothers thought granny drug dealer, you know, yeah. that she is full of drugs. <laughs> I thought body parts because... <laughs> Gwen was a, a single woman in her 90s. She had some history. She never told us. She took it to a grave. But I thought maybe she'd been spurned by an old lover and wouldn't that be perverse if she wanted to keep the severed member with her in her final moments? She didn't die then, by the way, but she didn't know that. Right. And She's so, preparing. Yeah, so the whole way I'm thinking this is cool. And even then I thought without knowing what is in there, this is a book, isn't it? And I got to her house. I got out the hot water bottle. I looked inside and it was full of cash. And I mean, tens of thousands of dollars. And Gwen was a woman of modest means. She was not a cashed up grandma. She was, uh, you know, on a welfare pension. And here's all this cash. And I just thought, this is going to make it into a book. And as it happened, it was a combination of she'd won on the I think you call them slot machines. We call them poker machines, the fruit machines. She was really into them. Yeah. 
So she had a big win on that and she also had committed a bit of pension fraud. I can say this now because she's dead. And she'd yeah. like <laughs> siphon it into the hot water bottle so her pension wouldn't be cut. So that was kind of her bank account in a way, which was significantly less interesting than what I had in right. my mind. <laughs> yeah. But a, a but book still. was gone. And, uh, yeah. and so with the younger wives and then this hot water bottle full of cash, I thought this is unlocking the family secrets, put them together and and away we go. So so that was what started it. Oh, I love so it. good. So even before it made it into the book, I had was following you on social media and just following your adventures with Gwen and everything you wrote about her. It was so wonderful and endearing. I felt like I knew her and loved her like you would. And when you lost her, I remember reading the post and tearing up myself. It was like we all lost a little piece of something because of what you had shared with us. It was so beautiful. And I remember your your message was about obviously you were feeling sadness and grief and loss, but you chose to focus on how lucky you were to have had her in your life. And I was like, oh, she's so good. She's so good at this. The way you position things, I guess. And I, someone could look at your social media and think you're so cheery, you're so funny, and that nothing has ever happened to you. You've never heard the word no. You've never gotten a single rejection in your life. But I know from interviews, I've listened to some interviews with you, that you have had things happen, especially to a writer that would be devastating. I'm thinking specifically of a book in between the mother-in-law and the good sister. I think that's right. Yeah. The placement. Yeah. That didn't make it into your publisher. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because we'd love to hear. Yes. Oh my gosh. I have had so much rejection. We could do a whole podcast just on rejection. (laughs) And that's kind of the most fun to talk about, isn't it? Because laughing at my own misfortune. That's how I grew up. That's that's my favourite thing to do. You, once we've recovered a little bit, which yes, I now exactly. have. So <laughs> yes, yes, that is okay. Yes. But um, yeah, just suffice to say, even before I got to that particular point, there had been a lot of rejection, just getting the right book written and, and then finding an agent and finding a publisher. But yes, once I got my book deal for The Secrets of Midwives, which then rolled on to, that was a three book deal and then there was another three book deal, it felt in a way like it was a given, you know, that right, this is my job, I just write the next book and I've got my advance and I can bank on that. So it was a really good, with with hindsight, wake up call that you're really only as good as your last book and that nothing really is guaranteed. And so let's go back. So I had just written The Mother-in-Law. I just published The Mother-in-Law, which had come out to relative success. It was selling very well. Some really cool things happened with that book. It was optioned by Amy Poehler for a TV series and I, I went on Good Morning America. And then it was at the same time that I was writing this other book, which was about a swingers party. Now this, <laughs> I love this. Yeah, It's such a fun story because you guys know my husband Christian and for anyone who's listening who doesn't you might want to go on and follow him at Mr Sally Hepworth (laughs) because the story gets funnier once you know him but I decided to write a book about swingers and in order to do that because I was picturing myself having conversations like this and talking about swinging (laughs) and I thought well I have to go to a party right otherwise how can I possibly write about it and so I said to Christian (laughs) Sorry, I'm laughing already. I know. Hi, we have to go. <laughs> and we were like on the couch. 
couch watching, you know, The Voice or something on a Wednesday <laughs> night in our track suits. And I said, Christian, we have to go to a swingers party. And he just looks at me. <laughs> Normally said, it's, it's probably like, we have to go to a house on the coast so I can, you know, get an idea. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, at the bet. Usually it's we have to go to the supermarket because we have nothing for the school lunchboxes tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, we have to go to a swingers party. I'm writing this book. I know I'm going to be asked about it. And you can't do your research in books. You know, we need to go. We're not going to do it, you know, yeah. but we're going to go and have a look. And he was very discombobulated by this, but he just let me run with it because only about, you know, 30% of what I suggest ever kind of happens. So I looked up a party, this really kind of exclusive, expensive, like as close to eyes wide shut, but without all the creepy, scary (laughs) stuff as you could find. And it was in Sydney. We live in Melbourne. I thought, bonus, not going to run into like my kid's teacher or something. Bonus, yes. this out. Yes. (laughs) And it was masquerade. And I told the person who organised these events that I was a writer and that I was not wanting to take part, but I wanted to go and observe. And she said, this is going to be a good party because there's so many people there. No one will know who's doing it and who isn't. Don't tell anyone because then you don't want people to think you're a a voyeur, but go to this party. So we went to the party. (laughs) Sorry. We pretty much walked in. And it wasn't so much partner swapping as it was orgies. Oh, and so oh, okay. within about 15 minutes of being there and Christian and I are standing there sipping our drinks like we're at a kindergarten fundraiser <laughs> and, you know, fully dressed in our nice, you know, little black dress and he's in a lovely suit and tie. And 15 minutes later, people are naked and having orgies, you know. <laughs> And Christian's saying, do you want to go and have a look? I'm like, no, I don't want to have a look, but that's that's why we're here. So (laughs) I kind of have to. So we had a a look. I mean, it was not my thing. I'm into the voice, right? So this is, but (laughs) if this was your thing, it was pretty magnificent. You know, like they were all very attractive. They were, I was taking notes up here for my book. Christian was entirely traumatized and he just from then went to the bar and just drank. He's just head down, just drinking at the bar. And I'm I wandering around. Christian. Yes. <laughs> I'm wandering around, like taking notes, seeing what's going. I mean, not actual, like that. all the notes are up here. Right. <laughs> and I remember looking over at one point from one side of the room to Christian standing at the bar and this man walked out of a bedroom beside him near the bar and he was wearing this shirt, but he had no pants on. But the shirt kind oh. of covered his bottom. So it reminded me of Tom Cruise in Risky, Risky Business. Risky Business. <laughs> but without the socks. So he walks out and I'm looking, thinking, huh, I wonder if he's got undies on. And at yeah. that point, he turns to the side and hits Christian in the leg you with get- his giant bone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's your answer. <laughs> Oh, this is great. Oh, oh my God. Wow. Lots of things happened. We both left incredibly traumatized, but with the best story. Like, we've never been so popular. Everyone we know wanted to, like, have dinner oh, with us so course. we can tell them the story. Yes. Of course. That was great. I went away and wrote the book, and I then delivered it to my publisher, and the publisher said, I don't know. I don't know if this is right. 
And to be honest, it wasn't really right. I hadn't done what I had set out to do, which was not ever meant, it wasn't meant to be a kind of erotic fiction or anything like that. It was meant to be an exploration of marriage and sex and the role of sex, but it was just centered around a a swingers party. I wasn't hitting the mark. I kind of knew it, but I was hopeful that my publisher might know what to do, which often she does. And long story short, we went back and forth a few times and eventually she said, look, could you go and write another book? I said, okay. And I remember telling Christian, they're not going to publish it. And Christian just looked at me and said, you mean we went to that swingers party for nothing? (laughs) (laughs) No, for the stories, for the stories. Come on. (laughs) We always have that bonus story. But look, that the, the rejection was terrible. It was not just emotional, but financial, because at that point, you know, I was the primary breadwinner in our family. I'm now the sole breadwinner in our family. I was worried that that was a year of work that I wasn't paid for, that I thought was a given. And so coming back after that, forcing myself to write, it was almost like being new again where you think, well, what's the point? Nothing I write might ever get published or read. It might not be any good. And the other thing, I've had people say, what can you learn from that? What advice can you give to people? And I think what I've learned is that that could happen again And it probably will happen again because I plan to write books for the rest of my life. And what we know about life is that it goes like this and I'm going to write some books that will not sell and I'll write other books that hopefully will sell a lot and I'll probably write some books that aren't good enough. And I think that that that's the advice that I would give is that if you're in it for the long haul, you probably will have to weather some storms. Expect it all. Yeah. Expect it all. Expect it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that story because it does, as you said, you had your share of no's or this is not for me, but you think it's something that once you get an agent, once you get the book deal, it never happens again. As if you cross over some magical threshold to which you can never do anything that might be turned away again. And that's just not the case. And what's interesting is that people don't talk about it, but because I'm a talker, my my mum always said to me, Sally, you don't have to tell everyone everything. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But, But I tend to not listen to that. And since I have been vocal about that rejection, I have met so many authors of all different levels and all different parts of their journey, very well published authors yeah, and starting out authors who have had very similar experiences and they've kind of said, thank you for saying that. Or it's happened to them after they had heard my story and I had one very good friend said to me, because she got a, not quite as bad, but a, an entirely new rewrite, and she told me that she said to herself, well, at least it's not as bad as what happened to Sally Hepworth. Sally <laughs> Oh, there you go. Oh, I've done gosh. a good service to the world. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know what the funny thing is, we have heard stories like that as well of people, especially I feel like it's we've talked to some women in Hollywood and I feel like it's even more prevalent there. It's like forget it, expect fifty percent of your stuff to be no matter how successful you are, no matter what show you worked on, expect half of it to go in the garbage. But what I also love about that story is that your editor cared enough about you and your name and your legacy of books because I know some 
Obama authors whose editor should have said this book isn't good enough, but it still went to press. And you're like, whatever, just throw it out oh, there. And Yeah. And what I left out of that story was the way that she rebuilt me after that too, you know. Uh, oh, and wow. She, and because she knew how, and we've worked together on every book, so it's a long relationship that we have. And I said to her, I'm nervous about this. I'm anxious. It's not going to be any good. And she said, what do you need? You know, we'll do this together. And she let me send her the next book chapter by chapter, which is not something we normally do, up to about the first 10 chapters. And then she said, you're good, just go write go it. Go with it, yes, yes. And she also helped me. I started writing the book 350 words at a time because I couldn't face the idea of writing any more than that. And, yeah, so having an editor that believes in you is an amazing gift. Yeah, but this story, this is so interesting because one of the questions I wanted to ask you about was sort of what makes a Sally Hepworth book. And you're touching on it a little bit here. You were not trying to write erotica, as you joked, but maybe that was an attempt at something that maybe was a little bit of a departure. And we love the fact that your books kind of do defy genre, but still have these attributes that are yours. And I read in an interview, you said, I've always been quite focused on character, and that's what I care about. I'll continue to write about women and women's health, relationships and family with a bit of menace in there. That's always been my go-to. And I loved that, a bit of menace. So is that how you would describe a, a Sally Hepworth book? Yeah, I think so. I always come back to dysfunctional families. And yes, in dysfunctional families, there's menace. And there kind of needs to be menace for me, not, not always and not in every book, but for me to make me care. I can watch a rom-com on TV and I think, eh, this is okay, until I find out that there's a stalker outside the window that's wanting to kill one of them. And then I'm in, you know, yeah, I need life yeah. and death. Yeah. <laughs> and I also think, I guess the other part of what I do, again, without intention, because so little of what I do has any intention behind it, but is inject that black humour as well into situations. So I guess make it something important like marriage, like sisterhood, like these family relationships, yet add something a little bit menacing and then let's laugh at, at it as well. I mean, I have this story that I always trot out and my dad says that it come, it might come across badly, but it's my favourite little vignette of my family and it's got all of those things, the dysfunctionality, the menace and the humour. And it was one Christmas day when we were all down, my parents have got a beach house and there's myself and my two brothers, wives and husbands and kids all jammed into this house. So there's a lot of, and we all adore each other, right? Like there's so much adoration, but we had really little babies. And so the whole day was spent shushing each other, shush, <laughs> shush, you know, me and my sisters-in-law and and then like a baby would wake up and we're all kind of eating cold food because one of us holding a baby. And I was very pregnant. I was about nine months pregnant. I had one baby and I'm pregnant. And I'd hardly eaten all day. I'd been shushed. I'd had cold turkey. I was hungry. My mum was passive aggressively cleaning up all of the wrapping paper from my kids' toys and putting it on my bed. You know, I was I was on the oh. edge. <laughs> And, and I looked in the fridge. I think the babies had all gone to bed and I looked in the fridge and there was some ice cream left, like just enough for one ice cream cone. So I got it out and then I got out one of those cones. I don't know if you guys have them. Little old ladies have them. They're the cones with the flat bottom so you can stand yeah. them up. Oh, you yeah. know the ones? Mm -hmm. That's oh, all yeah. we eat. I mean, oh, <laughs> Wafer cones. Yes. Wafer cones. Yes. I mean, I'm a waffle cone person myself, but, you know, <laughs> my mum had these cones. 
I made the ice cream. I stood it up there on the bench and then I turned around to throw out the empty carton of ice cream. And I turned around and my dad was sitting there eating the ice cream. Like in that moment of time. And I'm pregnant, right? And I am on the edge. (laughs) I, Without thinking, I reached into the knife block in one (laughs) slow moment. I picked it up and I threw it at him. And it... Oh, my... (laughs) And it missed him and it hit the wall behind him and, like, quivered, you know, in that kind of... (laughs) And everyone in the room, like, it had been this day of shushing and everything and there's silence and everyone looked and my dad just handed back the ice cream. (laughs) Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And we all walked away and we laugh raucously about that story all the time. (laughs) And, you know, he says, oh, you didn't mean to get me, did you? Honestly... I think I did. Uh, yeah, you you're know, like, or I didn't care at frankly, best. If it was a female judge and I told her about the pregnancy and the day that I'd had, I think I'd get off. Oh, yeah. I think so too. You're so, two lawyers right here. Yes. Me and Corinne. Yeah. Right? I agree. Yeah. Totally. Stimulating circumstances. And so <laughs> yes. that is families and we love each other, right? You know, we all get yeah, along. Right. Parents are married, right. there's no younger wives, we all get along. So families are capable of menace and that humour and that darkness and yes. those things we do in a moment, that's what I'm harnessing. Yes. There's heavy subjects, dark matter, but so much heart and so much love that, I mean, you're just rooting for these people in these terrible situations without thinking twice about it. Love it. So I listened to another interview of yours and you were talking about having a really close group of friends that you've had for a long time. And that was interesting. But what I loved was how you said how sometimes, but rarely, someone weasels their way in (laughs) into your group. And the person was like, weasel, like, why are you using the word weasel about your friends? And you're like, no, that's what they do. They're weaseling their way in. And I loved it. I was laughing. But it also made me think of my husband. And I'm like, for circumstantial reasons, when my husband and I met, he was not really interested in taking me on. And I weaseled and I weaseled my way into his life. It has worked out very well for both of us. So, but I don't know, there was just something about that word that I was like, oh, that's, I'm the weaseler and he's the person who needs (laughs) someone to weasel in. Yes. Then I found out that you are both Gemini's and I was like, hmm, I wonder if this is something about a Gemini. You have your thing, you like what you like and there's... Because that's just his personality. I realized it has little to do with me. Then it was just, he likes what he likes and he has everything set and it's, that's it. He's done. That's what it is for me. And it's not that I don't want other people in my life. And as I say, some of the weasels are my bestest friends. You know, I'm just so grateful that they weaseled because they're just so awesome. It's more to do with the fact that, yeah, I, I have my routine and my, my world. I'm so lucky to have these wonderful friends that that I have. And I'm in those middle 30 years, you know, 30 to 60, where your life is very full, just with your work and your children. I have three children, two with additional needs, which we love and celebrate, but that take more of our time. And I am a real nana. I like to go to bed early. And so (laughs) those kind of things where people my age make friends, like those school functions and cocktail parties or coffee mornings, they're not my jam. I I just want to stay home and watch The Voice. Christian, my husband, 
adores them. We need to know Christian sign here yeah. now. Okay, this is the fourth time I've been like I'm, I'm Christian cr- yeah. in this mix. So before, wait, just what is it? <gasps> okay, oh. interesting. Yeah, that's my okay, sign. not my sign, but uh, what are you? I'm a Leo. Oh, lion. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean the whole thing. <laughs> Okay, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So Christian, I did not mean to interrupt. I just feel like we're kindred spirits, but go ahead. Yeah, well, he's very social and he is the stay-at-home parent. And so he, say he has more time. I don't mean that in a disparaging way because he does a lot and, and he's very busy, but he is the one that goes to the cocktail parties and goes to, on International Women's Day, he was the only man at the mum's coffee morning. Yeah, love it. <laughs> International <laughs> Women's Day. Women's Day. And, but he's a very proud feminist. And for me, you know, I, I'm I'm tired at the end of the day and so I'm not kind of actively looking for friends or new people, but it's the people who show up at the places that I'm going to be anyway, you know, the school sports or the school pickup, not that I do that anymore, but my kids, friends, parents, you know, people that I'm forced to engage with or someone I sit near at my, I, I now work at a shared co-working space a lot of days, if they appear in my life enough, I will develop a relationship with them and adore them. But if I have to make effort to seek them out, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to happen. That, it sounds Is just that like my husband. No I, no. I mean, if it's awful, you're talking about my husband, so I'm yeah, not going to. Oh, yeah. I like him. I like him. But, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's good that there's one of each because I would yes. never see. I would be a recluse in a little cabin in the woods if it wasn't for yes. He helps yes. us have friends. And uh, <laughs> we've balanced each other out by now. So I, I want to talk more about your social media as much as I guess I relate to Christian Weasley into your life, but I do relate to you and so much of what you put out there on social media. I share many of your boundaries and your proclivities. <laughs> I am an introvert. I don't feel compelled. My favorite thing you ever said was that you don't feel compelled to go outside on a beautiful day. Oh, I was like, thank you. Thank you. I can't understand this. I, I can't had, understand this. We lived in LA for a couple of years and it was the worst part was every, the weather. Well, you're supposed uh, to go outside yeah, every day. Like every no, day. That's ridiculous. No, it was, it was too much. It, I found it oppressive. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really found I'm it I'm having oppressive. anxiety just thinking about it. Like who says that you need to go outside because it's a beautiful day? Look out the window. That's very nice. I'm happy That's here nice. on the couch. That's great. I love this. I love this. You guys are explaining to me the other side yeah. because I am that person. I feel really like I have to get the fresh air. No, I got like, to go I've outside. Been outside before. But do you I know want to go like... outside or do you just feel like you should? I feel better after I do. Mm. And because that's really what it made is. us believe I know. that yes. we need to do it. It's not that is right. true. We need to speak loudly. <laughs> if you're an inside person. Like an inside dog, you need to wear it on a T-shirt because people need to know that it's okay. Let me tell you something. A long time, I somehow ignored this about myself and tried to make my kids into something that they weren't. Well, my son is definitely an inside person. And I used to make, you have to go outside today. You have to. It's a beautiful day. Go outside. And I just recently found this picture of him in a sandbox reading a book. Like, yeah. like oh, this is an activity I could have done inside, but you forced me to go you outside. Here I am sitting in your sandbox reading a book. 
It was... It's one of the greatest cons of our time, this belief that we have to go outside. I'm really quite jack of it. I think that, yeah. that we should start a campaign. You should. You two should lead the charge. I, well, I'm not kidding. Well, you shouldn't be forced to do anything you don't want to do. That, no. 100%. You can still go you outside shouldn't. if you want. We're not telling anyone sure. not to go no, outside. Exactly. But just to release the guilt. Yes. Yes. And the same thing with socializing. I do love to socialize, but on my terms, when I'm doing it, I don't feel the need to just because, like, I don't know, it's Friday or something. It's it's so, like, I don't work that way. And going and... to the coffee shop is socializing. You go in, you say, I'll have a skinny <laughs> latte. How's your day, Bill? <laughs> Not bad. Thanks very much. See you tomorrow. Good. Great. <laughs> Human interaction. Check. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Really, though, I, I've always been this way, but I'm kind of pretty quiet about it. And after watching your social media for now a, a year or so, I am like, I don't have to be quiet about it anymore. I think this, the perception that... You're loud and proud. Yeah, that I'm like a troll living under the stairs or something. I'm not a troll. Sally's not a troll. No. Like, we are not trolls. That's the second t-shirt. Yes, exactly. That is the second t-shirt. We are hermits, but oh not trolls. God. That's right. <laughs> and your hermits could be cute, okay? Cute hermits. Oh my gosh. Yes. So... In that way, you are very generous with who you are on your social media. It's not about selling books all the time. It's not about, I say all the time because probably somebody wants you to be doing that sometimes, but you're really out there about who you are. And another way that you're really generous is with your writerly Wednesdays, where you talk about everything from craft, like how to sprinkle in red herrings and twists, and then how to face doubt and what to do when you're not sure how to start. What makes you do these things? Because you've already done them. You don't have to share that wisdom with everyone else. Yeah, look, I think the funny thing is, is the thing I'm least comfortable doing is spruiking my book. That feels so salesy to me and I don't think it works. Like when I see people going, hey, here's my book and just hitting people over the head with it, I don't think that's ever made me buy a book. Unless I went, oh, that author's got a new book coming out. I'm, oh, great, I'm going to buy it. But that hard sell has never been something that I have done. And I do really like talking about things that I care about and that I know about. And and one of them is writing, and, and or at least my experience with writing. And other things are fashion, which I, I really love. And I talk about that. My children's just funny antics that they do and, and Christian and our life. So I guess that part of it it's so easy for me. It's such easy. I spend no time on my social media, zero. I'll just do a little video. Like this morning, Christian walked past as I was filming something and did the chicken dance, which he does from time to time. And it's so funny. And I just took the little video. I popped it up, put the chicken dance music, away you go. Um, (laughs) I don't want a curated Instagram feed. I don't really do it with book sales in mind per se, but yet the more I do get on there and people can see your face and they feel like they know you, you develop a following of people who do buy your book. But the key, I think, for me, and when I talk to younger authors, you know, or younger in the terms of their career, is don't spend a lot of time on social media if you're just starting out, because your time needs to be on writing the books and getting the best book written as you possibly can and at that point you know the only people that are going to follow you are going to be your family and friends (laughs) because they're the only people who know you exist 
And so have a following and put things on there, but it's not going to be until you've got two or three or four books out there that people that aren't your great auntie Gwen are following you on the Instagram and you're able to really connect with people who don't know you and then that kind of thing snowballs. So I think for me, my kind of way of doing it is it's less salesy. It's a lot of me and my face so I can connect with people and talking about things that I know that I feel yeah. confident talking about. Yeah. But it's authentic. I mean, that's ultimately what it is. It's you. And that's what I think people Which is want. what makes it easy. You know, I yeah, think that's exactly. why it's quick and I don't put a lot of time into it. If you're trying yeah. to do that, and I think it's sort of Instagram of time gone by, that perfect look you know those perfect yeah yeah uh, lots of cuts and no ums and no mess and everything I, that looks time consuming but i yes. don't stop filming if my kid walks in or if the doorbell rings or my dog snores i ain't got time for that yeah <laughs> no <laughs> one cut that's it exactly so we want to know what else are and you're so good with sharing this stuff anyway like what are you reading watching binging that you love We'd love to hear about it. So, well, the last one I finished was Inventing Anna, but I have since simultaneously started watching Pieces of Her with Tony uh-huh. Collette. Oh, yes. We just covered that. Yes. yes. Oh, so good. Mm-hmm. But I'm watching that with Christian, and he is not as available for watching right. TV as I am. So I have a side show. Uh, <laughs> yes. Of, um, a side piece. Of, yes. For when I'm in bed alone. And that is the Tinder swindler. So just to oh, kind of follow oh, on nice. from the inventing Anna, I'm going on a craze of fraudsters. Yes. yes. My husband watched the Tinder swindler without me, Gemini's, oh. <laughs> and then pieces of her together. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they're, yeah. It's, yes. they're good. Pieces of her is a good one to watch with a partner like Christian, because I'm constantly saying, who's that? What, why are they doing that? I don't understand. Ooh, mm-hmm. Where have they gone? <laughs> it was like yeah. Game of Thrones. He had to do oh. an introduction oh. and said I wasn't allowed to ask any more questions. Oh, no. Because who knew what was My going? husband read the books, so I asked everything. Same with mine. So the, they're like an encyclopedia. Then you can ask them anything. Yeah. And actually, I think the ones, they kind of like it. Yeah. The books were a bit different too, though. And so That's then right. that was confusing. But it didn't really matter. Like, you'd just be like, you know, you I'll watch this long enough yeah. and Jon Snow will come on exactly. and everything will be fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Basically. Oh, my gosh. Oh, those are good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but what am I reading? So I've just read now... The annoying thing is, is that most of the things I read are not Anadarks, but I'm pretty yeah. sure this is going to be out. It says 4th of May in Australia, Dervla McTiernan, The Murder Rule, such a good one. She's an Australian author, but she's Irish. So she lives in Australia and has for her most of her life, but she sounds Irish, which is so glorious. She wrote the book called The Ruin, which she says the rune like that. Want to hear her say that over and over again. Another one is called The Way From Here by Jane Cochram, which has just come out last week in the States, which is just a wonderful story about two sisters. One sister is dead at the start of the book, but has left letters for her sister to open at each destination and she's set a kind of itinerary 
and the sister has to travel around the world opening the letters and sprinkling her ashes and it's just this beautiful but oh, also wow. but also quite good secrets get revealed along the way about the Ooh. family so um, wait sisters and secrets this sounds like yes. a Sally Hepworth book I, I like it <laughs> but, but isn't it fun how you can give two authors or a room full of authors the same prompt oh, in yeah. fact I've just done this for Amazon Amazon original stories has asked myself and four other authors to write a short story for the summer original stories they release and and it's called the getaway and they've given us all the same prompt and we have to go and write our own short story and I know knowing the they'll be so different they'll, they'll be so different and same with this book with Jane Cockrum and I you could give us that and my story will be so different from hers so yes yeah I love that and your next book is already done. Is that right? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then will you start writing after this promotional tour or? I've already started. Oh people my just, goodness. I know people say things like I'm churning them out. I don't churn. Like what a word. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, not that like I'm not creatively offended or anything, but I always just get this like churning kind of image in my <laughs> like mind. Like you're making the butter yeah. like, or I'm the sausage. The, like, yes. <laughs> Exactly. The way no, you're like publishing works, so. is just really slow. It's I'm just I'm working on a very regimented schedule and that's how it works. Yes, and, and for me I write a book a year and so yes, the next book is done and ready to go and I've I've started work on the one after that and I guess to the people who say you're a machine or you know you churn which I think what people kind of don't understand or lose sight of with writers is that Writing is our job. It's quite a fanciful job in the sense that it's creative. But, like, imagine saying to a doctor, um, oh, oh, my God, another are, surgery? You, are you already <laughs> yeah. Yeah. what exactly. you're going to do and you're already going to have another surgery tomorrow? It's our job. For me, it takes a year. And so, yeah, I'm, I continue to be on that trajectory. If I could not come up with a book title or I couldn't deliver on time, that would not be a problem. For me, I've never had that fierce get the book in by this deadline. My publishers have been so amazing at, you need more time, you have more time. If I was to say, you know, I can't do a book this year, well, there was the Swingers book, Escapade, we worked around that. I'm definitely not feeling like I'm on a wheel. I love what I do and I am a Gemini. And so when I finish one, I'm excited to start the next one. And so that's how it works for me as opposed to the churning. It's more just... Here we go. Start again. Let's let's yes. do something new. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That is Gemini's are mutable signs. They are very good at that wrapping up and yeah. then moving on. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a part of the duality of the twins. Which is why I think that it's a good career for us because I think in an other career I might have jumped to three or four different careers by now because we get bored easily. Right. But mm-hmm. being a writer, it's like you start a new job every year. Now I say this to my husband about me. I do lots of different things, and I'm like, it's like five different wives you've had already. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's good for him. He needs that. Yeah, that's right. I can be five different wives in one day, especially (laughs) since I've you know got into my (laughs) forties. Well, Corinne knows I have a son who's a Gemini and she has to counsel me. I mean, it is literally having a 10-year-old who has five different personalities in a day is a little challenging, but I guess it's, you guys are used to this. I have a five-year-old who's a Scorpio and she has, you know, 25 personalities in a day. So Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) we know just the Gemini's, but I do. I do it for you. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. The Younger Wife is out now. It's so good. You will not, if you're looking for a Sally Hepworth perfect book, this is another one. Yes. That is so kind. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you for the lovely interview and hopefully we can speak again one day. Yes. Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com and keep it complicated.